Isaiah 55 and verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he was near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord. You'll have compassion on him and to our God for he'll abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire, without succeeding in the matter for which I sent. For you'll go out with joy and be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts and joy before you. And all the trees in the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial for the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. May God add his blessing to the portrayal of his kingdom in Isaiah 55 where we're told there is abundant pardon and forgiveness for repentant Israel. And that is why God is different. He forgives. He's far and away and above and different from us because of his forgiveness. Remember that when someone throws that theology at you, that my ways are not your ways, it's talking about how long suffering God is, how forgiving he is. We're told regarding fellowship forgiveness, that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not for a non-believer to come to Christ for the first time and then confess sins so that we'd be forgiven. That's not what that's talking about. It's saying that believers who are forgiven for all sins in their position in Christ still have fellowship that they need to have maintained and at times restored. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer to regain that standing. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that as we turn our attention to your word, you reveal things about yourself that we could not otherwise know. And that's why we've assembled tonight, Father. We want to know you. We are coming more and more to appreciate the great blessing of the time which we live that we can know you this way. And while it seems to some to be a chore, a sacrifice of time, Father, the more we come to know you through what you've said, the more we realize we are blessed. We are enriched more than we can imagine as you open the word to us. We ask that your spirit would be our teacher tonight. In Christ's name, amen. Please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 33 tonight, where we're learning about uh, the final woe of the six woes in chapters 28 through 33. And tonight's our last night on Isaiah 33, if you can believe it. I don't know how long tonight will go. I have a pretty good idea. It'll be about 60 minutes. All right. Woe to the destroyer is the way the oracle begins, but there's a lot more to it as we've seen. This is a chunk that is in a unit in 33 through 35, it turns out, through 3510. And it looks like this. There's in the first part in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 33, just look at this structure for a moment. I have a lot of theology I want to talk with you about tonight, but I want you to see the structure of the text because it doesn't jump out at us in our, in our English Bible. Verses 1 through 6 is the salvation of Zion, and it is parallel to what we'll do tonight Verses 13 through 24, the first proclamation about Zion and its king. But the second piece after the salvation of Zion as the topic is the judgment of all the peoples, as we saw last time in 7 through 12, or the time before. 
The B section, that's verses 7 through 12 of chapter 33, is echoed in all of chapter 34, the second universal proclamation, the final overthrow. So it goes Zion and then the peoples. Zion and its king and then the peoples, all the peoples of the nation. See, the Bible is not just about these Jewish people and their God. It is about them, but it's about these Jewish people who are the special possession of the creator and their God, who's the creator of all the peoples and who is through the Jewish people going to rule over all the nations and has provided salvation for them through the Jewish people. And so the the closer, the final sort of frame uh, makes a kind of a, I guess kind of like a Big Mac. You get three A's and then two B's in the middle. The pilgrimage of the redeemed to Zion through a renewed world in 35, 1 through 10. And that's a really neat package and it's really involved and complicated. And if you're not tracking on the structure stuff, it's okay. I just assume you're Bible readers. A Bible reader is going to read through Isaiah and just like, duh, 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 what? And, and I'm telling you, this is how that that poetry gets structured and why it seems like sometimes you're talking about one thing and all of a sudden you're talking about something else because that's how his poetry is structured. And tonight, this is what we're going to cover. We're going to look at verses 13 through 24, chapter 33, about Zion and its king. This is messianic prophecy. This is stuff about the Lord Jesus Christ 700 years before he came. And what's exciting tonight is uh, it does focus on the king, but it will focus on especially the people of Zion. Last time we were looking at chapter 33, we went through verses 1 through, 1 through, 1 through 12 with the destroyer and then the appeal for grace and salvation. So the Assyrians, I believe, the destroyer, whoever's unrighteous that he's talking to is going to receive God's wrath, but then there's salvation. So remember the two sides of the coin, there's doom and judgment, but then there's also deliverance and salvation on the other side. That's verses 1 and 2 of chapter 33. Then verses 3 and 4 back to uh, the people's of the, of the world under God's judgment that become plunder to the Lord. That's like the, the first verse, verse, the destroy be destroyed. But then in verses five through six, we had blessing the new Zion and abundant salvation. See how this goes back and forth? It's sweet and sour chicken all the way through. He's, he says the, the bad thing and then the good thing and the bad thing and then the good thing. Well, why won't he make up his mind? Well, see, everything God does, this is the theology of it. Everything he does is in righteousness and love and justice and all the character qualities of God, every act he takes, including the great white throne judgment and the removal of Satan and his fallen angels and all those that follow them into the lake of fire. Nothing God does contradicts the character qualities of God, all of them. And so it is absolutely righteous, just, and good and holy that the wicked be destroyed. And it's absolutely righteous, good, and holy that he provides salvation for his people. And that's the God that we serve. He is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And he shows grace to the multitudes and of those who love him. But uh, in the rest of the things that he says about himself in the various passages where he self-defines uh, in, for example, Exodus 20. Verse 7 through 9 of chapter 33, you have back to mourning and sadness and treachery. And then God's decision and action in verses 10 through 12. And it's kind of uh, surprising, the end note, kind of the last taste you get in your mouth in verse 10. Now I will arise, says Yahweh. That's, that's the Lord, the God who self-exists, the, the one who is. Now I'll arise, says the Lord. Now I'll, ex- I'll be exalted. Now I'll be lifted up. You've conceived chaff. You've given birth to stubble. My breath will consume you like a fire. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. That's the last statement of this little chunk that we saw in that structural piece. And I'll just show you that again. The structural piece 
of verses 7 through 12. We had salvation in Zion and then the judgment of the peoples ending with all the peoples being burned to lime and cut like, thorn, like cut thorns. You say, whoa, whoa where, where is this? What? I mean, I don't know if my theology accounts for that. Everyone without Christ ends up in the lake of fire. That's the reason we proclaim the gospel. Verse 12 is a reference to that. It's unthinkable to us. It's revealed in the scriptures. I'm not responsible for it. I am, by God's grace, through his sovereign arrangement of my life and history, I am not a candidate for that lake of fire. And it's because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we'll preach the gospel. The way you don't go to the lake of fire in all of world history is the promised redeemer. He would come in the fullness of time, the son of Abraham, son of David, the one that had been promised all through world history beginning in like 2000 BC and before, well before uh, in the first, the first family heard about this, this promise that they would have a son. The seed of the woman would take away our sins. The seed that would come forth from Abraham, the seed that would be the son of David, the son of Jesse and sit on David's throne forever. He would take away our sins. And this is something that all of the Old Testament is looking forward to. And it happened in a time, in the fullness of time in history, God sent his son, born of the virgin, and he lived the sinless life that we wish we could live. He was the good person that we wish we were. He was the one who actually could be the candidate that would rule in righteousness because he had no sin, he had no self-interest. He was interested in his father's affairs. And what his father wanted to do was reconcile the world by his blood on the cross. And what Jesus did in obeying his father was he went to the cross and he was nailed to a piece of wood and hung between heaven and earth. And on that cross for six hours, he suffered for you and me, the last three of which he was covered in complete darkness. It says the hill of the skull or Calvary in, in Latin or Golgotha in Aramaic, the hill of the skull, the place where he was crucified outside the gates of Jerusalem, Jesus paid for your sins and mine. And the way we know this is that he asked the father that this cup could be removed from him, except that he drink it. If, if, if this cup cannot be removed, unless I drink it, nevertheless, your will be done. And what happened to Jesus on the cross is, is uh, illuminated by Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus suffered the wrath that was prophesied in Isaiah 53, that he was crushed for our sins. And it's a mystery it's a mystery to us, but so is our sin a mystery. Our proclivity, our propensities to disobey God, our selfishness, our, self, our self-consumption, the, the, the way we are, the brokenness of our hearts and our souls, these are all mysteries. But what the greatest mystery is that God was pleased to crush his son on the cross and Jesus paid for all of the sins of the world. And the only way I know that as the Apostle John of the Lord Jesus Christ told us that he is the satisfaction of God the Father for not our sins only, but those of the whole world in 1 John chapter 2. He's not only the payment for our sins, but for those of the whole world. And so what we're telling you, what we're telling everyone that we can is not that Jesus died for some or that Jesus died maybe for you if you're one of the ones, but that Jesus paid for your sins on the cross and that is the gospel. And what did you do? I wasn't even born yet. I I didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah, Jesus paid for your sins. They were gathered together in advance from eternity past. And he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so you have one option. One option about availing yourself of the life that he offered through his blood. You can trust in Jesus as your savior. I am placing my personal faith 
in Jesus Christ as my Savior, that he died for my sins so that I could have eternal life through his work. This is the moment of salvation, the very instant that a believer, that a person can say that. that, that and, and it isn't just the saying, it's that little spark of faith. I'm trusting in Christ as my Savior. There's no work you're doing to earn the work that Jesus only earned for you. And that's the gospel. And it's marvelous. And we need it. And the alternative is the lime, is the, is the cut thorns in the fire. In, in Isaiah chapter 33, verse 12, which takes us to verses 13 through 24, a picture of this first universal proclamation, the king and his kingdom. Um, we saw that already. And, and then here is the way the rest of chapter 33 works. I know I've given you a lot of structure tonight, but I did preach the gospel in the middle. Now, here's the structure. We have a call to hear in verse 13, which is really cool because it's God calling. God is calling everybody. And it isn't the conjectures of a woman who thinks she knows God and then puts her, her words in his quotations. It's not that, bestseller or otherwise. It's actually God speaking, like all of God's word. It is, and what we're going to do is teach it. And it's not my word, it's his word. And that's, the, that's what Jesus taught me to do. But he has, he has a call for everyone to hear. And then there's an emphasis on the people of Zion. Who can walk before this fire, this, this unquenchable fire? Only the righteous in verses 14 through 16. And then you're surprised and delighted in verses 17 through 19 with the king, the king who will rule over these people with Zion in the focus in verse 20, being at peace. Verse 20 in the English says, look upon Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an undisturbed habitation. A tent will not be folded. Stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cords be torn apart. The promise of the peace of Jerusalem. We're supposed to to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. This is the future. It is not the present. It is not the present, but it is the future of this Jewish kingdom over all the nations in Jerusalem. And I'm saying it without any any apology. It It is not a Gentile kingdom. It's the Jewish kingdom over the Gentiles. And they're fortunate and blessed and grateful. The nations will stream into Jerusalem to hear from Yahweh, from the Messiah of Israel. And then the presence of the king is restated in verse 20 through 23. And then Zion's people healed and forgiven in verse 24. And, and, I, and verse 24 is uh, rather challenging, but we'll, we'll get to it. All right, that's the Hebrew of verse 30, 13. Hear you who are far away, he says, what have I done? Or what I've done. Hear what I've done. This is not a suggestion. This is a command to the entire world to pay attention to him. Now, it's written in Hebrew. Isaiah, the Hebrew prophet, apparently gave this. I suspect he proclaimed this on the streets in Jerusalem 700 years before Christ. But here we are today, Gentiles, most of us, hearing what God has done. And understand, you who are near my might. Now, I hope you can see the neat Hebrew parallel. I like to bring these things out sometimes as, as we can. Hear and understand are the same idea. They're both in red. Same kind of thought. Hear isn't the same exact meaning as understand, but it's in the same, same idea, same ballpark. What I've done is the action, my might is the ability to take the action. If you see creation, we're told we see God's power in Romans 1. The created universe tells us of the power of God. Well, that's what you have. What I've done, my might. Now, can you see the parallel you who are far away versus you who are near. Do you see? That's so cool. It's so tight how he puts these things together. They shiver in Zion, the sinners. It is seized, trembling, the godless. This is the part that's about the people in Zion. We had the king with his universal proclamation. Now we're going to hear about the king, or the, the people. Who among us can live with consuming fire? 
of verse 12. If he's going to be in his righteous wrath, a consuming fire of all the wicked, we're supposed to have a little soul-searching, a little self-awareness, a little honesty, a little come-to-Jesus moment and say, we're in trouble. That's what you're supposed to do with verse 12. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live, same exact phrase in Hebrew, with the hearth of eternity, literally. The hearth of eternity. The mok, the mok de olam. Well, the answer is a surprising answer, and it is the righteous in Zion, the righteous people of Messiah in verse 15. Verse 15 is a long uh, verse with a lot of little things, so the font got smaller. But uh, those of you studied Hebrew with me, this is a fun verse because it's all cow participles all the way down. The first participle is the one who walks, the holek, the one who walks righteously. The second is the one who speaks, the dover, the one who speaks from integrity, literally from integrity. You could say uprightly, what, is that? what do they say? They say sincerely. Hope you can understand how integrity and sincere, sincerity are synonyms. A consistency from volition and motivation through action in the speech. He who rejects portions from extortion, literally, he who rejects that which might be offered, that's an ill-gotten gain from the extortion of someone else. This is how you uh, arrange your life and you rule that which is entrusted to you. You don't benefit from ill-gotten gain. He who shakes his hands, literally, from taking hold of a bribe, someone offers you the money and you shake your hands. I don't have anything to do with that. Shaking your hands from taking hold of a bribe. I don't have anything, nothing uh, in my hands from uh, being bribed is the idea. And this, this points to rulership. It really does. It points to rulership and it reminds us, it echoes things we've heard before in context, especially in chapter 32. He who stops up his ears from hearing of bloodshed, literally bloods, Thamim, meaning murder, acts of violence. There is a protection of what you consume in righteousness. What comes in matters, is what he's saying. And he who shuts his eyes from looking on evil. And we said last time, there's poetry here where he's talking about all the the, the different aspects of the person. His walk is a summary of his life. His speech reflects his walk. It's it's one and the same with his walk because uh, what you say is is what's coming out of who you are as as well as what you do in your walk and your uh, habit of life. What you reject, uh, the middle two pieces, he who rejects portions from extortion, he who shakes his hand from a bribe, and then the ears and the eyes what you consume. In verse 16, he from the heights will dwell. Now what happened between verse 15 and verse 16? Verse 15 answered the question, who can live among the consuming fire? Who among us could live with the consuming fire? If that's the wrath of God and his right justice on wickedness, then who can, who can withhold, withstand it? This is the, what you got to be like. And so blessed are they who mourn. <laughs> They'll be comforted, Jesus says. From the heights he will dwell. He from the heights will dwell. From strongholds of rock will be his refuge. His bread will be given. His water will be faithful, meaning faithfully supplied. He can rely that there will be provision for him. Now look up here right here. Right here you have bread and water. Right up here. Up this way. Right up here. His bread and his water are provided. It's the necessities of life. His logistics are met. He is secure because he's getting it from uh, the Father, and the, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That's the idea. 
And this part from the heights he'll dwell, from, refuge, from, from strongholds of rock, his, his refuge, this is saying that he is protected, that there is defensive protection for him. And this is not contradicted by the suffering and tribulation that the body of Christ has endured for 2,000 years. Because Christians were torn to pieces in the Colosseum or set on fire for Nero's entertainment and his garden parties doesn't contradict this because those people are provided for and they're marvelously going to enter the coming kingdom with great reward for their faith and their faithfulness. But uh, this is the, the abiding expectation of the righteous who walks righteously in his practices as we read in verse 15. Well, we didn't, we didn't animate for some reason, but we're gonna. Lou loves when I animate like this, his favorite. He wants to see the whole thing up front, all listed out, and then, but I don't do one at a time. Okay. Principle, cause, and effect. Do you see it between verses 15 and 16? Who can do it? The righteous man who walks righteously. And then this will be the expectation that he has. Did you catch the cause and effect? You could have seen that in your own Bible study, right? That, that verse 15 would be the cause and verse 16 is the effect, the expectation. By God's sovereign design, I want to argue, verse point one, that our decisions matter. That's a, that's a clear principle all through the scriptures. And there's a whole system of theology wants to say it's not true. But it really is true. Our decisions matter, and it matters. Do you know why our decisions matter? Because God has sovereignly decided that they matter. Your choices matter. Every choice you make matters. Second, God has arranged for us to relate to him based on his revelation, obviously. He's arranged for it. We can actually take in what he wants, his revelation, and then give it to him. That's going to be kind of what I say. He tells us what he wants, and we either give it to him or we don't. Point three, he, he tells us what he wants and we do it. And that's, that, that's a simplified thing. And we'll get to the complexity of the Christian life uh, toward the end tonight. But it's really clear what God wants. I like to think of the, um, today everyone's celebrating the Lent. Um, don't mean the, the stuff that's left in the, in the dryer. But um, um, today we, we begin Lent. Yesterday was Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, Fat Tuesday, and today is Ash Wednesday. And so they're going to have 40 days of fasting and, uh, and weeping for Semiramis and all that. And um, that's really just all borrowed from Babylonian paganism, I believe. That's my understanding of the whole uh, Lenten calendar. And I, that's, we were once asked, why, do, why don't we celebrate Lent? And I said, why would we? Where did it come from if you dig into that? And I recommend Heslop's The Two Babylons on that topic. But anyway, um, so celebrating Lent. Does God really want you to not eat fish, not any meat on Friday? Is it really? Is that really? The, does he say that? Because there's a lot of people in, in our community around us that think that that's what he wants. The, there's a famous um, ritual in, uh, I, I saw evidence of in Iraq among the Muslim people called the Eid al-Adha. It's their high, high holy day, one of them anyway. And there's the slicing of the child's forehead with a sword. Everybody walks around with a big cut on their forehead during the Eid al-Adha, especially little kids. I know Eid means witness. And uh, is that what God wants? Don't you remember the priest of Baal or Baal? You heard it as a Sunday school lesson in Baal, the priest of Baal dancing around, cutting themselves, screaming themselves hoarse for hours and hours. You know why they do that? Well, first of all, there's no bail. (laughs) 
and they've got to squeeze fire out of nothing. There's, no, there's going to be no fire. There's no bail. But they're dancing around, screaming themselves to the horse, cutting themselves open to get God's attention. And they have no idea what Baal wants. And Elijah's making fun of him. He's cracking jokes. Maybe he's covering his feet, which is a euphemism for something else. He's busy. He's in the bathroom is what he's saying. Wait, just got to wait. Scream a little louder. Maybe he'll hear you more. Elijah's a rare wit in the Bible. You know, the, the Bible doesn't tell a lot of jokes, but it does tell some jokes. All right. They don't know what God wants, but you've got God's word. You know exactly what he wants. In the recent uh, festivities, uh, this last Sunday, uh, Super Bowl Sunday, which is just right before Mardi Gras and then Ash Wednesday, we got to roll all these things together, I guess. In the recent festivities, um, um, there was a, a representation of Christ in which the suggestion was that there is no sin except for hatred of sexual deviancy. He gets us. He gets us good and, and, and gets us uh, even though we're going to persist in sexual sin. And that's the prop, that was the ad campaign for He Gets Us. Because the pretending is that God hasn't revealed what He wants in that area of life. So we don't know. We know what we want. And so we're going to superimpose our AI Jesus out of our own desires and make up a false Christ. And that's what he gets us with saying, that, that there's no repentance from sin. There's no rejection of personal sin. There's just simply the embrace of sin because, after all, Jesus washed feet. I don't know if you saw that. You can YouTube it. Keep your trash can close or whatever you, whatever you need handy. But... uh. He got our sins on the cross and paid for them. And he washed the disciples' feet who were already believers to offer them partial cleansing so they could have fellowship with him. And John 13, you can check it out. That's only believers receiving that blessing um, who are uh, actually benefiting from it. He even excludes Judas in what he says. You're all clean, but not, not all of you. You're, you're clean from the bath you've taken from the word I've given you, but not all of you because Judas was the unbeliever. He says Judas breaks the illustration, but the point is the believer's cleansed, but he only needs to wash his feet. It has nothing to do with uh, people caught in Satan, satanic deception and lifestyle personal sin based on sexuality. But anyway, the, the point I'm trying to illustrate here is that he tells us what he wants. God is clear in his revelation. We like to argue and reason and conjecture about the little things about the Bible, but it's really clear what righteousness is and what it's not, and you don't really have to spend a whole lot of time dithering about it when you just know what God says. If, for example, if he labels something an abomination, probably going to avoid that, whatever that would be, just for one example. My fourth point is that in Isaiah 33, we have the cause in verse 15. It's the walk in righteousness. That's the cause. The effect I'm sorry, the, this point five is the experiential righteousness of obedience to God. It doesn't say who has a transactional imputation of righteousness by faith. It doesn't say that. It says the one who walks righteously before God and has his mouth trained on righteousness and integrity with God. It's somebody that is carrying out and living out the character of God. And so what's, this is what's supposed to kill us because we aren't there. So we're all headed to the fire. This is 
this is, bef- this is preparation for the gospel of by grace through faith salvation. Sixth, we also see the effect in verse 16, security through God's provision. The security for the one who walks in righteousness. And I think this echoes some of the sentiment you have in Romans 2. Romans 2 portrays uh, life for those who walk righteously. And then Romans 3 kills everybody and says nobody walks righteously. And so we all need a Savior who did what? He walked righteously and provided righteousness to impute to us. But you who have imputed righteousness really benefit from verse 15. He's describing how you should live by the Spirit. I mean, we could take that that truth that he's saying there and look at it through the lens of our New Testament capabilities. Absolutely, we can bring forth the righteousness of God in our practice because we have the Spirit of God in us. That's where we're going to go. All right, in verse 17, we switch over back to the king from the people of God to the king. A king in his beauty, they will behold. What will behold? Your eyes will behold. They will see a land from a distance. So you have the king and the place where the kingdom will be, the focus being that you will see it. Now, who is you? The people described as walking in righteousness before God in verse, uh, verse 16, verse 15 and 16. This is righteous Israel in the land with the king in the land. Now think about that. This is what's going to happen. This is the millennial kingdom in description. The people of the kingdom are going to walk in righteousness before the Lord. They've never done it. Anti-Semites, uh, I think, are bitten by an, a, a disease, by, by, a, by a, a, pesky, a pest that gives them a, a, an infection. It's a satanic infection of conspiratorial antipathy against God's people because of perceived grievances and, uh, and practices, like they have all the power in Hollywood or some other uh, true statement that they do. They're powerful people with great intelligence and great blessing because of, I think, genetic blessing God's given through Abraham. And, but, but the anti-Semitic people want to say that they're different from us uh, because they're bad. The Jews are different from the Gentiles because they're bad. And what we don't realize is that God has shown all the warts and, and all the scars and all the nasty blemishes of his chosen people, beginning with Abraham, to show us a mirror of the human race. We're all nasty, wicked people. I've, I've told you this before, the person in Iraq got into geopolitics with the guy at the hospital once, a doctor was trained in English speech with, by the English because it's the English medical system. The doctor said, um, yeah, we don't like the Jews. It's like, interesting, you're educated and you're telling me, you don't. yeah, they want the money. Those, those people want the money, I said. Interesting. So the whole thing is their greed, that's it, that's it? Yeah, they want the money. I was like, do you know anybody that doesn't want the money? I think you mean they get the money. <laughs> their success, there's the, the Joseph principle is happening and you see it. That's, that should evangelize the world. That's, read, read Genesis, the last 10 chapters. God's, God's got a blessing for these people. They have favor from the Lord in, in some instances, in some aspects. And so, um, wow, that was it. They want the money. Well, don't you want the money? Well, that's different. Why? Because I don't have the money. So this is just rank covetousness? Really? That's it? You cousins? Okay. I, I believe it. See, uh, what I'm trying to show you is that um, all of the nations are going to benefit and be blessed by these people that are hated and God's destiny for them is glorious. And 
The Bible begins with Israel and Abraham and selling his, giving his wife to Pharaoh and giving his wife to Abimelech, and Abraham's a stinker, and then Isaac's a weakling, and then, and then uh, Jacob's a real stinker, like a super stinker, and, uh, and, then, and then, you know, wow, this is the people? That's how it starts. Look how it ends. Righteousness in Zion, these people walking before God according to his character. Your heart will meditate on terror, and you'll, in meditation, you'll have to look around and say, where, where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? Where's the enemy to come in and spy us out and attack us? We're not under attack. I expect there to be, but there isn't because of the Lord's provision and protection. A people of insolence you won't see. A people of incomprehensible mouth from hearing, meaning you can't understand what these people are saying because they're foreigners. Staggering of tongue, there's no understanding. This is the people that you won't see. You won't see these foreigners attacking you anymore. And that's not true today, but that is what's coming for them in the future. And now the focus of our entire poem, look at Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem as an undisturbed settlement. That's got to be the future. That's the millennial kingdom. I mean, that's almost as, as fantastical a description as the lion eating straw like the ox, but that's what's going to happen. There will be an undisturbed settlement, a tent not broken off, your Bible might say folded, but this is a more violent word, I believe. And if you break off a tent, then other things happen, like it won't tear out its stakes forever. And I, 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 I'm, I'm sad to say how hard I worked on this verse because the verb is in the active voice. Everyone translates it passive. It stakes won't be pulled up, but it says it won't tear them out. Third masculine singular, it, the tent will not tear off its stakes forever. And I think that means that the tent, when a violent thing happens to it, gets broken like the middle pole gets broken and pulled, and then the tent pulls its own stakes up. I think that's probably the picture. It's not going to happen. It's going to be stable, and none of its cores will be torn apart. The portrait of future Zion. Oh, I love that word. Zionism. The idea of future blessing by God for national Israel. That's what Zionism is. The, the idea that today that these people are in their land that, that should belong to them by right. Zion, the, the future, the destiny of the human race and of these people. And I didn't say that these people are righteous today in their practice. I'm saying you see the scriptures that these people are a portrait of the wickedness of all man, mankind and yet as trophies of grace, they're going to walk in righteousness in the kingdom. Indeed, there, back to the king, verse 21, the magnificent one, Yahweh will be for us. Why are these people walking in righteousness? Because the Lord is involved, Yahweh. Now, I've told you before this name, I put it in the, in the letters, in the, the consonants, because um, we don't know what the vowel points are. But we conjecture Yahweh to pronounce this name. And I want you to remember this is based on these three letters, H-W-H or H-V-H, or H-Y-H actually, which is the verb to be for existence. This is the name God revealed himself as to Moses when he said, tell them that I am sent you. I am that I am. That's the, uh, that's the message. Indeed, they're the magnificent one. Yahweh will be for us. A place of rivers and canals, wide of hands, he calls it. Literally, your Bible doesn't say wide of hands, but that's what it says. Wide, it means you could stretch out, and it's a, it's a word picture. You could stretch out your hands, this is a big, wide space. Wide rivers, wide canals. A boat of oars will not go on it, and a magnificent ship will not pass over it. Now notice the, in this, not going and not passing are on the outside, and the boat of oars and the magnificent ship are on the inside of that little, that little exchange. 
And so the idea is uh, that it's in peace, that there's no apparent need for commerce, everything's provided, and it is its own dominant feature. The, one of the descriptions of the coming um, new heavens and new earth is the river that flows from the throne that waters the nations and waters the tree of life. And so um, a beautiful picture of provision and security for Yahweh when he is ruling. In verse 22, for Yahweh is our judge. Do you like that? Do you want the Lord to be your judge? Because the people in Zion are going to be able to say that. He is our judge. Now, the, the Apostle Paul says that about uh, God and the Lord Jesus in Romans 15 when he talks about judging the weaker believer for his lack of faith or his un- uncertainty or his uh, ignorance. And uh, you, who are you to judge your brother, he says. You know, he'll stand or fall before his judge and he will stand because the Lord will make him stand. And this is awesome news, and this is beautiful to us. When we submit ourselves to God and follow the pattern set out for us in Philippians 2.5, and consider Jesus who, for the joy before him, endured the cross, who consider Jesus who humbled himself to the point of the death of the cross, when we adopt the attitude of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can say, I love, I love that God would be my judge. But here's the other side of that coin. If you can't do that, then you might have a little bit of a chip on your shoulder about it, or even worse. You might really reject the idea of God as your judge. A little, bit, a little litmus test about where you are with God. Yahweh is our judge is the best news ever because it means that righteousness is going to carry forth. And I know in my case, if righteousness executes injustice, I'm in a lot of trouble, except the gospel, except Jesus, except what God promised in his son. And so God is our judge, and we're declared righteous. Yahweh is our mohokenu. Um, uh, the word hukim is the statutes. It's one of the several synonyms for the uh, laws. Torah is the law, but then you got hukim, statutes, or hok. And it's not related to the word chokmah or wisdom, but um, lawgiver might be one lexicon says ruler, just ruler. And I said preceptor, the one putting out the, the, the statutes, the enactments. This is, uh, I like that word. He's our preceptor. Uh, we know we're right if we're right with him. And we know it's right because he said, and he's the baseline for judgment. He's our melech. He's our melech, our malkanu, our king. Yahweh is our king. Yahweh is our judge. Yahweh is our lawgiver. Yahweh is our king. He will yesha us. He will save us. Yoshi Enu. All right, uh, let me hang on on that word for just a second. Do you know that this is the most magnificent word in all of the Hebrew Bible? I believe it really is. It's where you got your name, Yod Shin Ayan. Right in there, Yod Shin Ayan. And the verb in the Cal perfect is Yasha. I've translated here save. It's not a Cal perfect here, but that's what it is in the Cal perfect, Yasha. <clears throat> uh, this word is uh, the basis for the name Yehoshua. And he's considered the savior because he's the general that leads Israel behind the captain of Yahweh's host. He's the human general, Joshua, the son of Nun, who leads Israel into battle. Nathan Joshua. Yehoshua. Same name, Yasha. 
from the verb to save, or he saves. And that name is the most wonderful name that has ever been uttered because when you bring that into Aramaic, it gets shortened a little bit to Yeshua. And this is the name that Mary was told to name her firstborn son. We say Jesus, and it's a really interesting story of history why we say Jesus for Yeshua or Yehoshua. But the word means salvation, deliverance, help in time of trouble. God, we need this. We need salvation. We need it every day. They hang slack. What do? Your cords. They cannot hold firmly the base of the mast. So now the picture is you're on a boat and the mast is hanging slack because the cords, the tackle isn't holding in place. These cords that are hold, they can't hold firmly the base also because they're slack and not taut. They can't spread out the sail. So you're ineffectual and hopeless. You're like a ship that has no hope of self, uh, self-steering or, or propulsion. You're just at the whim of your environment. Then it will be divided, the abundant booty of spoil with you. The lame ones will plunder the plunder. There are four words in here, or three main words for uh, spoil of war. Booty, spoil, plunder, and the verb for plunder. You'll bazaaz the, you'll bazaz the, the baz. It says, you will bazaaz the baz. You'll plunder the plunder is how I've translated it. And I believe what this is saying is you are incapable in yourself as you're weak to do anything like a ship without any tackle, but yet in your inability, you'll still be wealthy. You'll still have a cargo and a haul and a victory despite your weakness. And that's the conclusion. In the middle was Zion. On the outside, we had the three pieces looking at the people of God, and the big excitement was that the king would be in their presence. And no resident will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell in it will be lifted up or forgiven from iniquity. The people who dwell in uh, Zion will be, will be healed. So you, you've got inability with success. That doesn't work. Usually your ship has to work to be able to bring in a cargo. Nope, the ship's going to be rich even though it's incapable. And the people will be lifted up or forgiven from iniquity. God who forgives iniquity, iniquity will forgive the people. All right. I want to talk about the adjustment of the attitude in verse 15 and 16 with the remaining time. You remember what it said in verse 15, who can withstand the fire? The one who lives righteously. So what's the adjustment for us? Are you saying that we have to live righteously to go to heaven? Is that what we're saying? No, we're saying that the one who walks righteously is not in in fear of God's judgment. Well, is that how we go to heaven? No, Jesus walked righteously and paid for your sins on the cross. And that's the gospel adjustment. You have to kind of put the entire Bible together on this topic. So does that mean we don't walk righteously? If I'm saved by grace through faith, then I don't have to walk righteously is the way people will conclude. Because all they can think of is if they're going to heaven. Like that's the goal. And it's not the goal. You and I need to get past this idea that the new birth is all there is. I'm saved, I've trusted in Christ, and that's it. That's the beginning of a life lived in light of the coming eternal judgment 
of your life's works and the power of the Spirit. I now have the Holy Spirit so I can do the works that please Him. I have like 30 points. First, the description of the righteous walk in verse 15 requires something more than good intentions. Because he says you actually walk and speak righteously. It mean, it's something more than, well, I'm trying. It doesn't say somebody that's trying or hopes they do good, or at least I'm not as bad as the other person. It's the person that walks in what? Right up here. Right up here. Righteousness. Someone that actually carries it out. We're almost there. This is, this is that part of the race where you got to take a deep breath and really dig in. Sprint to the end. Don't quit. Verse 15 says, he who walks righteously... He who speaks from integrity, he who rejects portions from extortion, who shakes hands from taking a hold of a bribe, he who stops up his ears from hearing bloodshed, he who shuts his eyes from looking on evil. A description of virtue and integrity, and we're all right to say that sounds like Jesus. He's the righteous one. See, we who know him well hear that verse and think that's got to be talking about him. We study it out, and it's talking about the people in Zion. Jesus is represented by God in the passage. He's Yahweh. These character qualities describe the Lord Jesus Christ, don't they? That's what he's like. Are you like that? No, Jesus is like that. Are we supposed to be like that? Do you see the connection? Human beings in our fallen state are incapable of meeting the standard of God's righteousness in our walk. I can't, from my energy of the flesh, please God and his infinite righteousness. Even if I'm not directly committing personal sin, my righteous deeds are as filthy rags in God's sight. I don't have it in me to do what Isaiah is describing. And it seems like in the coming kingdom, the people in Zion will. There will be a fulfillment of this righteousness and security. We're not capable of sanctifying ourselves. You with me? Not capable of what? Sanctifying ourselves. What does number five say? We're not capable. And what does that mean? I can't from my own bootstraps and energy of the flesh and really desire to really get it right. I can't get it. It's impossible. And the answer to that, and listen, there's some more points. Then I don't quit and say, oh, well, I'm just going to be a fail. No, there's the rest of the New Testament on how to address this. Sixth, we need God to sanctify us, and he will. Beloved, he will sanctify us. And seventh, this means that at the point of initial faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior, he sanctifies us. When you first trust in Jesus, you get his righteousness. God sanctifies you, sets you apart to him positionally when we first trust in Christ. And that is not walking in righteousness. That is declared righteous by the righteous walk of Christ, and his righteousness is applied to you. So this is positional truth, and we get that language because the Apostle Paul constantly says, in Christ. And when Paul says in Christ, he does not mean what John says when he says, abide in me. It's a different topic. John is talking about the next thing after you're in Christ, walk in Christ, the experiential Christian life. But this is what Paul means. In Christ, point nine, we have the imputed the, the declared to our account righteousness, which, which results in the stuff in verse 15. The righteous one from his inner character will walk in that righteousness or, he won't, or there is no righteous act. There has to, in other words, I'm saying, listen to what I'm saying. There has to be that heart before there is the hands. There has to be the inner person before there is the actions. And so what we have is a declaration of God's integrity, his righteousness to us. And that 
if lived out, if embraced, will grow into the actions of verse 15. It's position before experience. But verse 15 is talking in Isaiah 33 about experience. Now, do you understand the difference between position and experience? I'll very clearly dramatize it. Someone tells you Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. And you, having, because of the Spirit's work in you, have understood this and trusted a simple act of childlike faith, trusted in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that is the moment of the new birth for you. It is the declaration of God's righteousness to you. It is the impartation, not imputation, impartation of eternal life to you. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for you. In this age, it is many things. It is the baptism of the Spirit into Jesus Christ for you. It is all of these things by God's grace, and you've done nothing but simply trust in Jesus as your Savior. That is positional sanctification. But verse 15 is not talking about if you're a believer. It's talking about the walk of faith. It's talking about one who walks in righteousness. And that is your experience. Point 11, as we grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit sanctifies us how? Look up here. As we grow in Christ, the Holy Spirit living in us sanctifies us experientially. It's the Christian life. New babies eat milk, the pure milk of the word. Mama, eat pure milk of the word. Start to eat solid food. Got some gruel or whatever, whatever problem. And then eventually, as soon as possible, steak and ribs and not ribs that aren't cooked properly. I understand. Got to get this right. But, But eventually we're into meat and we're growing and we're strong and we're healthy. And that is growing in Christ. And as you grow, you're being sanctified experientially. And it's a process. This is the Galatians 5.16 walk by the Spirit. That in the Holy Spirit, as he puts more and more of Christ's character in me through the Word, I'm more and more able to carry out the righteous walk, the righteous words, the, the, the behaviors that we have described as sanctified, as righteous. Galatians 5.16, it's by the Spirit. And why am I talking about the Holy Spirit? Because God put his Spirit in you to make you able to please him. My uh, favorite written theologian, Lewis Berry Chafer, in his systematic theology, when you want to ask that theology, where are we talking about the Christian life? He files it under the works of the Holy Spirit. It's under the biblical doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And he, in his class, he, he titled the, the lesson, The Power to Do Good. Why? Because it's going to be God's work through us that will please him. Jesus said as much in John 15 the walk by the Spirit. Thirteenth, this difference between positional sanctification, my new birth, and all the new truths that are all true for me by simple faith, and the experiential sanctification of faith, obedience, I keep trusting Him and growing in His Word, and so do what He's asked me. This is not the standard. Sanctification, the difference is not the standard. It's all righteousness. It's all the infinite righteousness of God. But the difference is the believer's willing environment, willing involvement in carrying out righteousness. See, everybody wants to front load the gospel with righteous works and the desire for righteousness, and you better want to be righteous. And, and it's like almost like the person's a mature believer before they even believe. And you can't do that. It's, it's newborn, doesn't know anything except Jesus. He can barely say Jesus died for my sins. And as he grows... He is more and more characterized by the Lord Jesus Christ. He's more and more desirous, and God is working in you both to want and to do what pleases him. Fourteenth, I promise we're almost done. We're progressively putting on Christ. 
or we're growing up in all aspects into him who is head, even Christ. That's Ephesians 4, 14 and 16. We're putting on that which is our position. We're in Christ. We've put on Christ, but we are putting on Christ. We have the Savior, but we're growing into the Savior. And we're in him positionally. We're abiding in him experientially. And it's the Christian life. And that sounds complicated. But, but that's, that's what's involved. It's growth into Christ. And so you should take uh, Isaiah 33, 15 and say, by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, as I grow in his word, I can be this person. And it's a, it's a foretaste because that's what it's going to be like for the people that are inhabitants of the kingdom. And you know what's true about them? It's true about you. They have the Holy Spirit. The promise of the new covenant was the promise for Judah and, and, and the, the northern kingdom that they would have the Holy Spirit and be righteous before God in their practice. You and I have the New Testament written to us because God has a progressive growth he wants us to, to, uh, to enjoy and to walk with him in a way that's pleasing to him. Your homework for reading is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14 through 32, um, or whatever else you want to read, but 4, 14 through 32 describes very similarly to Isaiah 13, 33, 15, the walk that's devoid of sin, that's in righteousness, that's as it should be. It's the challenge not to walk in sin, but to put on Christ. You who have put on Christ, walk in Christ. So this, verse, 15, verse 17, just real quick, I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer walk just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They haven't become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. You know, I guess Paul gets us, right? <laughs> to borrow the ad campaign, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. And in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. See, this is the old way. Verse 25, therefore laying aside falsehood, speak truth each one to his neighbor. That sounds like Isaiah thirty-three fifteen, For we are members of one another. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer. He goes through a list of sins to avoid. Why? Because you're putting on Christ. You're putting off the old man. You're putting on the new man. And that is progressive. That is the standard. The standard doesn't change, but your involvement does. Our Father, thank you so much for the challenge of progressive sanctification, the experiential work of your Holy Spirit in our lives. Thank you that... Uh, you have uh, rigors for us to go through. You have the paces you want to put us through as we trust you through the tests of our faith. Thank you for bringing us through tonight as we can consider what it's like to be the, the righteous in Zion in the coming kingdom and what it's like now to walk righteously before you. It's the power of your spirit through us. Father, don't let us forsake it. Don't let us waste the riches of your grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.